Let's see how much more pain we can put Shark through. Let's do it. I hate this particular kind of guy with everything I am. Oh, just wait. <laughs> we we haven't. I yeah. The the third episode is going to be a real joy. <laughs> These guys are very deeply in the say what you will about the tenets of national socialism. <laughs> at least it's an ethos category. <laughs> All right, give me a countdown. Dunkin' Donuts fancast. I'm Aaron, and I'm the biggest fan of Dunkin' Donuts because of their time-honored tradition TM of making America run on Dunkin' R. I'm joined by Robert and Rachel. Why are you two the biggest fans of Dunkin' Donuts, America's favorite donuts, TMCR? No, I stand Tim Hortons. I like the racism produced in Boston, most of the American racisms, and that runs on Dunkin'. (laughs) (laughs) projected right into the filling of those bear claws (laughs) yeah real it's every yeah Yeah. ah no 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 that was a joke we're not actually fans of dunkin donuts and we're not a fan cast about Dunkin' Donuts. you you got me wanting donuts now aaron that's right that's why you gotta have a pizza in stock so that well it's not it's not donuts but it's it's pizza and pizza's better than donuts. I think. No. Oh, what? you're 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 this is schism. Schism. Let's let's, let's continue. All let's right. continue. We're actually the right can't read, a podcast where we look on in despair as we're proven correct at just how quickly America is sliding straight on into fascism. Robert and Rachel, I'd like to tell you about a hobby I had when I was in college. See, when I was in college, back in the Halkion days of the early aughts. We were... Did you say Halkion? Halcyon, Halkion, I don't fucking care. Shut up. There is no correct way to pronounce Words are an abstraction of ideas. <laughs> it does not matter. They are, they are but transcriptions of, of brain thought patterns. <sighs> we wore onions on our belts back in those days, because that was the fashion at the time. We would go onto the hill in Knoxville and look at Ayers Hall, thinking about our assuredly glorious futures and how we, like our forefathers, would go west, young man. In addition to that, we also wasted a shitload of time on Facebook. See, Facebook at that time was a website where you put in your university email addresses, uh, added friends, built up a profile to try and really impress that really cute girl in your Stats 101 class, and then tried to ignore the creeping shame that followed the stunning realization that this was exactly how far you'd go in trying to talk to her. Partly because commenting was not yet a thing, and partly because DMs were not yet a thing, and partly because you still poured out your angst on LiveJournal and Zanga. You cannot see mine. They are gone. Buried. (laughs) Fuck, I was already Googling. Yeah, you're, it's, I used different handles in that time, too. It's, it's long gone, my friend. <laughs> were Facebook pokes a part of the original Facebook? No, those were implemented, I think, during the second semester of my freshman year. 
Okay. Okay. Yeah. I remember being in high school and my neighbor's sister had a Facebook and I wanted one very badly, but I couldn't get one yet. Yeah. Had to wait. Yeah. Oh, we're, we're delving into that history. We're open cracking open the tomes. And I, it's, it's like, we're, we're, we are Gandalf going into the library of Gondor to look up. What was he looking up? This is, a, this is an approachable analogy here. <laughs> What was he looking up in that scene? I just watched this last weekend. Why don't I remember? Wasn't it like Sauron history shit? Yeah, it was Sauron history shit, but I don't was it was it was about the ring specifically, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Oh god dang it, it's gonna bother me. I am no man. Yeah. I was trying to do Gandalf and then I forgot what he said. (laughs) So anyway, uh in addition to all of that, uh the creeping shame profiles i played a game with other guy, other deeply weird guys i knew in my chapter of e pie we engaged in a facebook-based arms race our target was to befriend the most profiles named jesus christ see at that time facebook was a wildly different place than it is today at that time you plugged in your interests and they were just kind of links that let you see who else was into that thing Those interests were not yet sponsored pages that grew to be horrible communities that quickly became toxic. You could also spin up innumerable fake accounts if you could swing university email addresses, which was easy enough to do. Hence, our game. At one point, I was friends with over 100 Jesus Christs. Or maybe (laughs) Jesus is Christ. I'm not really sure how the plural works for that one. Shark, you're you're the theologian. How does it work? What's the plural? It's definitely Jesus is Christ. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Jesus is Christ. And I think there was someone else who had over 300. So there there were, there were many Jesus is Christ on Facebook at that time. Indeed, it was a simple time. One in which you could start laughing about the weird profiles you found. You'd tell your friends, they'd laugh, and then all of you would get kicked out of the library for a week because it was finals time and you were ruining everything for people who actually had to study for their exams. <laughs> ah, the joys of being an English major. Then... <laughs> Somewhere around the time when Facebook opened up to people who weren't in universities, things began changing. The Jesus's Christ accounts were banned because they weren't actually Jesus's. The things you said you liked on your profile became groups, and those groups became sponsored and moderated by people who had something to do with, say, Bob Dylan. I was wondering if back when you were friending Jesus's Christ, you guys were aware that this was what was going to destroy democracy. Oh, absolutely not. (laughs) (laughs) This because we all came out of like, uh, I I don't think I ever got on to like rotten.com, but there were people in, in a, in my chapter who definitely knew what something awful and rotten.com that were. So if if any of us thought that anything was going to ruin the internet, it was going to be something awful or rotten. It wasn't going to be Facebook. Mm. So at that point, these groups expanded. Suddenly, the ill-conceived groups you created when you were drunk blew up in numbers, and you realized that it might not be a good idea to be an admin of the thing, and you left. Uh, I speak from experience. I created, I I, I thought I was the height of uh, worldliness and cosmopolitanism when I created, I want to go to an Irish punk concert drunk. And then it grew and grew and grew. I was like, I don't want to know, and fled. Uh, You could have done so well in your MLM if you had just kept that page up. I, it was real lack of forethought. I, I will admit that. Uh, but there was still some fun in the system left before it became what it is today. You could stage coups, for example. If a group happened to be unadmined, 
you could just snag control of the a friend of mine and I did that a few times. We posted messages that we had reclamated the group or reclaimed the group for the good of the people and had exiled the previous admins to Siberia. Nice. <laughs> and then things started getting really dark. More ads started popping up. More emoji reacts were released. More of your family members and more of your friends' family members popped up. Common sections, which had become a thing, but you don't remember when they became a thing, turned into written slap fights. Your DMs are where you barely held back from telling your best friend's uncle to go fuck himself and die. It had <laughs> or to didn't. use... A, huh? Or didn't. <laughs> or didn't. Uh, yeah, I, I... Yeah. It had to become a... Uh, to use a word that we'll soon be very familiar with, become inshitified. So, friends, today I'm going to take you through a journey of how social media, how the very internet, is in shitified. This will be uh, a bit different from what we normally do. QAnon will, of course, be mentioned, but our primary focus is about uh, the market forces that enable and amplify that sort of horror. In other words, we're going to be talking about the wonderful ways in which the sewers of the internet are completely, intentionally clogged with shit. Cool. <laughs> Can't wait. I, you, I cannot wait. Eyes are already dead. Just the look <laughs> yeah. of complete defeat on both you, our faces. You have you have turned into Morlocks. It's like I don't know what's coming, but I also do know what's coming, and it's just awful. Yeah, you absolutely know what's coming because you you know what Facebook is. Mm -hmm. So, the last time we talked about the internet, we talked about the early days. The days that most of us are familiar with at any rate. I don't think any of us had family members on ARPANET. If you do, let so. me know. Okay, all right. Good. <laughs> otherwise, I will have wildly misjudged who I'm talking to. Around the mid-90s, home computers began, began charging, uh, changing significantly. And probably charging significantly because they're very expensive and they continue to be stupidly expensive. <laughs> By the time the turn of the millennium was around the bend, PCs were starting to become a staple of American families and the bone-white or beige PC cases adorned home offices and family rooms. It was around this time that I was bashing my head against math blasters, simple arithmetic, and I'm sure my parents were certain that I would never become a physics major. <laughs> it's usually a good sign when you have a lot of difficulty figuring out division. <laughs> they were like, this is a writer right here. He better yeah, be good that, at writing. That, that's when my dad gave me a typewriter and just said, go write. And I turned out stupid like nonsense stories about dinosaurs and they're like all right i think this is what he's gonna do <laughs> and you write nonsense stories about dinosaurs to this day yeah exactly dinosaur dogs specifically but yeah. <laughs> yeah at this time the only way you could get online was through a phone line and a dial-up modem um would would either of you like to do an impression of the atonal screeching racket i missed out on this really okay yeah wow no, I. That's all I got. Okay. Shark, did you miss out on this because Hawaii is a blissful place that did not allow access to such rudimentary technology? No, I just like there was a war inside my house between my dad, who's like a very tech person, mm -hmm. and my mom, who hates technology. Yeah. And so the line they drew was I was like, allowed to commit genocide in grand theft auto <laughs> but i wasn't allowed to freely roam the internet 
marriages are built on compromise. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, it's uh, I, 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 I think Rachel and I can do the 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 impressions of the dial up modems. Never want to do that again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was it was a time um, that that screeching atonal racket. Uh, all of us, we look for fondly back on. It was ubiquitous, as was the rage of many parents to find that they could not make a phone call because their kids were trying to get on a Hey Arnold <laughs> for fans. hours, yeah, hours, hours no at a phone time. Calls in or out, <laughs> just desperately waiting for a single image to load. Yeah. <laughs> oh my god, I remember that. Oh my god, like waiting for the page slowly it would be like a quarter, and then a little bit more. And it's, wow. And then you get kicked off because someone picked up the phone line and started dialing the number. <laughs> <laughs> One of my favorite sight gags in any TV show ever is in the TV show New Girl. Someone bursts in on someone watching porn in the late 90s, and it's just a man like feverishly hunched over his desk while like a model is rendered to her collarbones and the rest of the <laughs> I think it's the funniest that's, thing of all time. That's not familiar at all. <laughs> no. For some people, the internet was BBS boards, basic HTML and CSS sites, and chat rooms. For others, the internet was portals put up by AOL, CompuServe, and Prodigy in an attempt to put guardrails against the online experience in full. The main thing to know is that this little era that we're going to start with is the dawn of basically Web 2.0. If the first web was the period of time where you could find the addresses of phone numbers of everyone with an internet connection, and you could... You should check out Werner Herzog's documentary, Lo and Behold, Reveries of the Connected World, not just because it's Werner Herzog, but because it provides a lot of cool insight into these sorts of things. Um, <laughs> then the second web was more like a mall or a shopping outlet center off the interstate. You didn't have direct access to people, but you could still have access to the things they put up. In my jangly, not quite together metaphor, Web 2.0's first days were like putting up storefronts in that mall. Some of the storefronts were Thomas Kincaid boutiques, some were video game storefronts, and some were these those horrible mall ninja stores where you'd go to buy swords that you'd then have to fight, hide from your mom, only to have them found by your grandma, who would flip out and start crowing <laughs> that you were getting ruined by those damn video games, and she didn't understand how you turned out that way. I feel like we're getting a lot of insight into your psyche today. <laughs> yeah, I don't know what you're talking about. Anyway... At this point in time, Web 2.0 was, in my estimation, a threefold thing. First is corporate usage. You have email systems and the infrastructure needed to send large files from point A to point B without fax machines, couriers, or other modes of physical transportation. You had basic websites. Again, these are the shop fronts I'm talking about. These are primarily built on HTML and CSS. GeoCities and networks like that allowed users who didn't know HTML and CSS to treat websites kind of like a Word document and do very limited things. I, I built a few of these, one of which was a Star Wars fan site. Uh, I don't remember specifics <laughs> about it, but I remember being really excited that you could like make bits of the page highlighted by like flashing barriers. And uh, but you know, it probably had stuff about how cool the Chiss were. Because their ships were called Clawcraft, which fucking rules. I'm glad to see that you have remained on brand. 
<laughs> I yeah, nothing. You know how like when you when you did the thing where you uh you passed around yearbooks to your 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 classmates to sign. Uh, people wrote never change on mine, and I took that too seriously. <laughs> I never changed. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. And then the third usage is chat rooms. In a sense, these are the precursors to what social media became. In my experience, chat rooms were hosted by major providers like AOL, Yahoo, and CompuServe. You dial into the web, fire up the chat room thing on whatever internet provider you used, and browse through Windows to find something that interests you. Hang out and summon enough and you become a regular and make friends. My highlights include, again, Star Wars chat rooms and watching my brother's friends troll chats by claiming to live in a mud hut with Yoda and watch members of the chat room with, quote, my myoptic eye. Good time. I look back at this and think, yeah, it was pretty all right. There were ways to form what passed as communities. Once GeoCities, LiveJournal, and Zenga really spun up, uh, networks of pages began forming as creators found each other, set up link share agreements, and kind of just plugged each other. You could fairly easily, easily find people with similar interests on any of the major blogging sites out there, and for a time, the internet's anonymity wasn't fully poisoned. Now, don't get me wrong, it was poisoned. It's always been poisoned, and it will always be poisoned. 4chan, of course, launched in 2003, and Rotten.com launched well before that in 1996. Uh, it was because of Rotten.com that I learned what a crime scene was and what no. happened to Chris Farley. <laughs> oh. <laughs> yeah. Hmm. But the nature of how people communicated, finding people with like interests and needing to be intentional with what you did online, it made it uh, harder to find the gnarly bits. Unlike now, where, say, your nephew can watch a, a Minecraft streamer on Twitch and be exposed to arguments about how really the Nazis weren't that bad of people. Mm -hmm. There are other reasons for this, namely moderation, that made it harder for things to go bad, but we'll get into moderation later. For now, though, I'd like you like to point you into a, uh, a, a an article or a, a piece called Stop Talking to Each Other and Start Buying Three Decades of Survival in the Desert of Social Media. It's a wonderful Substack post by a speculative fiction author named Catherine Valente. Valente details her experience online from prodigy days where she was pen pals with elderly women in the Midwest to today, where Twitter okay. is slowly being obliterated and turned into an unending 4chan by Elon Musk. We're My favorite keep... thing about Substack is you can always find someone with five people who are subscribed saying the smartest thing possible. Yep. It's very <laughs> similar to the days of like LiveJournal and Zanga. Yeah. Like it's... Very there, similar. There I don't think they have like bouncy alien icons on Substack, though. That's true. They should patch those in. Yeah. But the fact that there are people with like seven followers on Substack who are saying the smartest things in the world, being crushed by the weight of Glenn Greenwald is everything. <laughs> <sighs> yeah, it's a real fucking mixed bag, isn't it? Yep. Um, so she, yeah, she talks about her days being pen pals with elderly, elderly women, which again, as Rachel said, is just super cute, uh, and how that has transitioned to what we have today. We're going to keep going back to that piece throughout our chat today, but I want to introduce it now before things get sour. Her description of the internet as a as a weird kid simply looking to make connection maps, uh, it 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 maps so wholly onto mine that I legitimately had to stop in a few places as some deep, deep-seated memories started popping up. Like, 
a Chiss fan site, for example. <laughs> <laughs> the most basic thing, though, is that for a time, the internet was not an intrinsically horrible place. But the key to the internet not being an intrinsically horrible place was that you could do things for free. It's like a park, right? You can go to a park and do a lot of fun stuff with people because it's free. No one's charging you to go to the park, have a picnic, throw a baseball, yell at the goddamn hippies whose drum circle threatens to overtake the entire fucking place. You know, park things. Once the park has an admission cost, though, things change. Fewer people are able to take part in it. There's more incentive for the people charging admission to try and weasel more money out of you. Ads start popping up. Vendors start hawking shit. Then you look around and suddenly realize that you're in Six Flags and wonder what the fuck happened. It's the same thing with the internet. At the start, the wild west of the internet led to some wonderful things. It was easy to get in touch with writers and creators who were equal as equally jazzed about this whole online thing as you were. And because you were all doing it as a hobby, the tone was generally friendly. This is why, for a long, long time, George R.R. R. Martin had a live journal. It was called Not a Blog. And for reasons we'll get to in a little bit, it moved from live journal to his official website, where he still writes, and you can still see him use little bouncy alien heads when he's jazzed about something, and it's great. <laughs> nice. Yeah. Then things began to change. The internet began to morph from these weird little nebulae into more established websites with de not developers, but founders. I'm sure you can point to others, Dig, Reddit, whatever, but the one that pops into mind the most is obviously Facebook. I talked about it a little bit in the intro into this episode, but Facebook started off as something not dissimilar to other places on the internet. It was restricted to people with university email accounts and pitched as a way to find your classmates and see what they were into. At that time, the functionality and design were limited. It was, again, not too far off from the other sites of its day. Trackers, cookies, and malicious janky scripts were not as much of a baked-in part of the web back in that day and age. You could load the site more quickly, find what you needed, and, well, that was about it. The biggest interactive thing you could do was poke other people. That was introduced at some point in my freshman year. I don't remember when exactly. You'd tap a button on someone's profile. They'd get a notification that you'd poked them and they could poke you back. That was it. Then you'd get like a poke streak. You get the poke war. Or you'd do it. You would poke yep. the person that you're liking or like you would have it with your best friend for like a year. Yeah. You'd, you'd get real excited yeah. that someone poked you and you'd be like, what does this mean? Oh, God. Did she see that I'm into Bob Dylan and that I'm very smart because I'm into Bob Dylan? Most likely. <laughs> Poking was the first moment in my life where I realized that I was an asshole. <laughs> wait, okay, how? Wait, go pray tell. Because someone was like, I was, I must have been like 12 or 13 or something. Like an age where this is a wholly inappropriate way to act. And someone once poked me on Facebook and I ignored it. And they came up to me in person and were like, I poked you on Facebook and you didn't poke me back. And I just was like, looked at them and was like, that's the stupidest fucking thing <laughs> I've ever heard in my life. And I question my friendship to you and our past together based on the conversation we're having now. And I knew that this was who I was going to be forever. Shark, you and I are, remain on brand throughout <laughs> our entire lives. I just, like, was baffled that someone would talk to me about it in real life, and I just couldn't handle it. And I was like, oh, 
I'm fundamentally broken. This person <laughs> took joy in interacting with me, and I loathe them for him. <laughs> what you gonna do? <laughs> yeah. Rachel, do you hear us talking, and do you ever think, why am I here? <laughs> I like people who uh, no. enjoy life. Why do, why no. do I continue joining this these calls? This is so fun. Well, mostly, it's like, we had such different growing ups. You know, so I just this is a really fun window into someone else's growing up. Did you do like chat rooms or anything like what what was your. I did a lot of uh, AOL or AIM. Sorry. Yeah. AIM for sure. Um, Like I said, yeah. Because my my, my color scheme was black background, red text. (laughs) Oh, no, that's white. No. Um. What did I do? Probably like some neon colors, mm. classic neon. Yeah. Um, I remember having like doing the most for your away message. Yeah. Like it had to be something cool. I mm-hmm. don't know. Um, Super involved. You had to be clever. Yeah. Oh my God. I remember like the login and logout sounds when you heard like your friend or your crush or whatever, yeah. like signing on. That was huge. But like as a, as far as like chat rooms like other than AIM go, I was never a part of like any like online community like that. That's probably for the um, best. <laughs> I remember like coding a little bit in like the MySpace days, and that was super oh, yeah. fun. I kind of wish I would have continued with that. But yeah, so like yeah. not too deep into the internet, but definitely like yeah, lots of time spent on AIM. Yeah, <laughs> like I I don't remember spending a lot of time on MySpace because it was like. Live Journal and Zanga were most mm. of it, and like MySpace was on the periphery, and then it became Facebook. Okay, I never had a Zanga or a Live Journal. Okay, I knew what they were, but that was not my vibe. I was obsessed with like making my MySpace like figure out how to put a cool background, how to put music, how to customize my mm-hmm. top eight when it was like or like making the top eight smaller, just like all the fun yeah. customizations that you could do really. I remember a lot of people I went to high school with had a lot of Avril Lavigne on their MySpace. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. That was yep. the yeah black thing. and pink. That yep. was the mm-hmm. other thing that made me realize I was an asshole is being <laughs> 12 years old, falling in love with a girl having a human conversation becoming each other's myspace friends seeing her music list <laughs> and then wishing to never speak to her again yeah to be fair that's how i feel about bumble a lot <laughs> yeah <That's, laughs> see there's spotify top listening yeah it's like this is uh, not gonna work this isn't gonna work <laughs> yeah it's they say christian no yeah it's amazing. Basically, my rubric is I need someone who is into everything about Repo Man. Like <laughs> the soundtrack <laughs> and the line. I don't want no commies in my car, no Christians neither. That's <laughs> solid, yeah. Yeah. I for a while just like I, I the only line I ever need on a dating profile is like, can you listen to four plus hours of the mountain goats? And that just really <laughs> sorts the wheat from the goddamn chaff. That's not that's a good idea. I should be. I should do something like that. Except well, I guess what mine would be like, can you listen to four plus hours of Klezmer? I guess. <laughs> that's how Aaron got married to a girl from the 1830s. <laughs> <laughs> that's how Aaron got married to someone who just fled an Orthodox community. 
<laughs> do you actually go home after a long day and turn on Klesmer music? Goddamn right. That's yeah. insane. Dude, earlier earlier this week, um, I was on a real big Black Ox Orchestra kick because it was just a bleak week. Everything was super slow, just real painful. And then uh, the Trump indictment news landed and I started cackling maniacally and it switched into happy klezmer mode. So, <laughs> yeah, then it became mm-hmm. Daniel Kahn and the Painted Bird. I will admit Daniel Kahn and the Painted Bird slaps. Every so often, I have a tendency to just put my Spotify on shuffle when I'm in the mm-hmm. car with people because I want everyone to know that I need to be medicated. <laughs> <laughs> the Daniel Kahn and the Painted Bird song, Six Million Germans, will come on. Yeah, that's and good they'll one. be like, what the fuck is this? <laughs> it's like an upbeat sort of klezmar fucking accordion jam about <laughs> Nakam yeah. and the killing of Six Million Germans. Uh, another good one to throw on your list is Yosel Burr, a patriot. It's it's uh, a song about a dude who's really jazzed to go into the military because they got cool uniforms. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think that one's a uh, like a traditional ring. I don't know. Anyway, yes, four plus hours of Klezmer. Get the fuck out. That's <laughs> we got we got into Aaron's youth psychology. Yeah, this is this is a now real we're exploring like... how I found out I was this way. <laughs> this is a real like journey into Aaron's id trio of episodes. Yeah. Oh. Minus Rocco's modern life, which is another big part of my id. We will yeah. never say anything bad about Rocco's modern. No, life. no, Rocco's modern life is fantastic. Turn the page, you wash your hands. You turn the page, you wash your hands. On repeat in my head. Anyway, uh, the central thing about all this is that Facebook and the internet had not yet been destroyed by inshittification. So let's talk about that term, inshittification. As far as I can tell, it was coined fairly recently by Cory Doctorow. Do you guys know who Cory Doctorow is? Yeah. Robert, you no. want to you want to t- tell us about Cory Doctorow? I mean, by and large, my interaction with Cory Doctorow is a human who writes smart, like, left-wing things online. Yeah. Yeah, he, he does a lot of fiction. Don't know if he too. does more, but... Yeah, it, I mean, his short, his novels are pretty okay. Mm-hmm. It's not my favorite, but yeah, his, like, he's got a newsletter that's worth subscribing to. Uh, I mean, this is a lot. Yeah. I mean... Okay. Yeah, I think like you there's a there's a lot that ties into kind of our past job, Rachel, that is uh, I find it interesting. Um so he outlines the process. Oh yeah, and we also talked about him a little bit last episode. Uh he's done a lot of writing and policy work for the EFF, the Electronic Frontier Foundation. So he outlines the process of inshitification like so. Quoting Here is how platforms die. First, they are good to their users. Then they abuse their users to make things better for their business customers. Finally, they abuse those business customers to claw back all the value for themselves, and then they die. (laughs) If you're wondering what's happening with the bird app. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) As he goes in and tries to shut down every piece of infrastructure and then say, why is this breaking so much? It's just been my favorite over the past couple days now that he got rid of the verification mark. Like, everyone's like, I'm not paying for that shit. Yeah. I'm like, yes. Yeah. This is how you're going to get Eli Lilly fake accounts <laughs> tweeting about, like, whatever it was yeah, that wound up with spot taking. Yeah. It is deranged. Every... 
If someone on the internet thinks they're a visionary, run. Just yeah. cold boot your computer. Turn Anyone off. who is very excited about technology, you should run from. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Yeah. There's a it, we we talked about it a little bit last episode, but the game Cyberpunk uh, <laughs> has a cool mechanic where, like, if your character gets cyberware, like bits of technology that you plug in in lieu of like you know body then you you lose humanity points and if you go <laughs> below a certain threshold you go into cyber psychosis and the only way you can regain humanity is through extensive therapy within the game it's really yeah sounds about right yeah you ever so, wondered if it was an accessible role-playing game <laughs> i was gonna say oh it's not that bad but i you know i've also been playing these games for several years at this As point so. you and your dm do extensive therapy <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So we've seen this process of enshittification time and time again and everything technical. Hell, nearly everything that is a consumer good. For the purposes of our discussion, we are going to treat Facebook as a signifier for enshittification on the internet, though a solidly equal an equally solid argument could be made for just about any major website out there. In so many ways. Facebook is a microcosm or macrocosm because of the obscene reach of the, of the site of the internet. Like many websites of its time, it started off as a simple thing, at least from the user's perspective. As we're all aware of by now, Zuckerberg has had always intended on this thing being a predatory cash cow. Go read the innumerable write-ups out there that are about the evolution of Facebook and Zuckerberg as a eldritch horror that's not what we're doing here. We're not talking about his, his becoming a lich. Yeah. <laughs> From the user's perspective, Facebook was a simple website where you plugged in what you liked and what you didn't like, and it let you make connections kind of around campus. You could, by having a page, connect with people you knew in other colleges once support for those colleges was added. Then, slowly, new features were added that complicated matters that turned it from a, a place to just fart around and look at other pages into something that's been termed a walled garden. Do you two know what a walled garden is? Um, Pop a place that is self-contained. There you go. Nailed it. So I kind of, I, I actually wrote it down this time, and I defined it this way. <laughs> a, a walled garden... Is a segmented off space, whether it's an app, website, forum, what have you, that disempowers and discourages the interoperability of the web. In other words, when you're in a walled garden, everything you do happens there, and for all intents and purposes, the wet the rest of the web does not exist. For me as a kid, AOL was a walled garden. Facebook's feature creep got us there sooner than we realized what was happening. Basically, Facebook started implementing all of the features of the web just within their own domain. Within a few years, you didn't really need to go off of Facebook to get news, to shop, to make connections, to plan events, and to play games. <clears throat> I've had a lot of friends over my life who had uh, entire relationship arcs that were sparked, managed, managed, and then ended on Facebook. Yeah, Within that those... is an insane piece of like, I don't know, It feel, there's something about it that feels like cishet Midwestern in a way that I like can't quantify. I mean, that nails it really well, it just, honestly. It just feel I get the same feeling with that particular thing that I do looking <laughs> at a bowl of jello salad. It's just like a vague <laughs> confusion about what happens in the middle of the country. 
or like a gender reveal party. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. that winds up burning down half a state. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yes, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I uh, I don't recall ever getting invitations to gender reveal parties, but I know that they were a thing within, especially the oh, evangelical yes. portions of my friend group. Oh my god, yeah, they never reveal a new one. It's <laughs> always the same boring fucking two every time. Change it up. Let's go. Yeah. yeah. This this is the future the left wants. <laughs> Fuck yeah. If someone was like at this gender reveal party, I will reveal a new gender, I would go to that fucking party. I would move shit around. I will be there. Yeah. Oh. One day that will be supported on Facebook. <laughs> Oh, it no. is. You can already stream that. Yeah. See, there you go. Like they've even brought in Twitch to to your platform, and it's it. Yeah, <laughs> it is a walled garden. And uh, within those few years that where all of this functionality was added, if you did go off of Facebook, the company had made so many advertising deals that your activities throughout the internet were sent back to Facebook. Once there, your pages updated based on activities that you opted into, either by allowing cookies or using a single sign-on tied to your Facebook account. <clears throat> These are the machines that power the advertising wheels of the internet. And I'd say that's where the trouble began, but really the trouble began with what we talked about last time, baked into the whole thing, the meat of the the bones of the internet. Um, but for most people, I think, who don't think about that, the trouble likely began with personalized advertising. And that, to me was a creation of Google, which has gone through a much quieter form of enshittification than Facebook. Ultimately, Facebook, at some nebulous time between, say, 2009 and 2016, became less a place to spend some time between bopping around on, on some other websites and more an ad delivery platform that had effectively made a copy of the internet in its own website and trapped everyone inside of it. Frankly, I think the only reason Facebook isn't the default internet anymore is because of the dominance of apps on smartphones, but that's a bigger conversation. And I can judge by the way your eyes are glazing over that you're not interested in having that conversation, so we'll move on. <clears throat> so getting back to the point of all of this, in the midst of all of what we're talking about, you have a bunch of social media websites run by people like Mark Zuckerberg and Jack Dorsey who ascribe to a growth at all costs and move fast and break things mentality, right? They're building their version of the internet and they're building it in a way that ties into that third wave society we discussed in the last episode, the society that is built on removing all of the bits of the second wave society and creating a bold new space where the, 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 the steel and industrial giants and governments of the past have no, no sovereignty on, on John Perry Barlow's benign philosopher king realm they just want to sell you shoes <laughs> that's all they're talking about <laughs> i i i bought then well they yeah shoes and just junk i bought like a bluetooth adapter for my headphones uh because i upgraded my phone and it no longer has a a, a 3.5 millimeter port. i load that i hate it too because the adapter was like 50 bucks and it lasted six months. Oh, that's yeah. awful. It's terrible. They were quick to to send me a new one because of the warranty, but this one's going to last six months and then the warranty is void because I already switched out another one. So it sucks. Everything sucks. Technology was a mistake. 
agriculture was a mistake. Getting out of the ocean was a mistake. <laughs> <coughs> the third wave society. <laughs> society. <that should laughs> yes. <laughs> was a mistake. But these people argue uh, that the third wave society should exist without government regulation with private property, red property and infrastructure owned by companies as the central focus of society. So in order to continue growing, social media companies must figure out how to get people on their sites more and more. Facebook is, once again, the champion of getting eyes glued to pages and sets the tone for the way TikTok works today. They develop an algorithm that utilizes their new functions, reactions based on emojis, to determine how your social media feed works. And again, this has been covered in multiple other sources, some of which are going to be linked in the show notes under the misinformation header. And I invite you to go read it, read them all, because this is the way everything is. This is why YouTube is structured the way that it is. It's the way TikTok's algorithm knows what you want, all this shit. Um, at the crux of it, though, is a simple thing. Facebook figures that certain emotions draw more reactions and engagement than others, chiefly anger and sadness. So they boost anger and sadness in their algorithm. Posts, articles, or videos that get angry and sad emoji reactions get boosted more than others, leading to an increase in their prevalence on the website and along with that, misinformation. You ever wonder why Fox News and Breitbart get so much traction online? Because they piss people off and it, they tap into the lizard brain of every human on Earth. Did you did you say that it was intentional that they did that or no? It's intentional in the way that they were trying to figure out how to keep people engaged. And they saw okay. that like people that kind spend of more time and comment on things that get more angry and sad things. Okay. Mm -hmm. So when they're building out like how how to build the 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 social media feed based on like reactions and comments and everything all of those emojis get different weights attached to it right so they just put in i don't know like 2x angry face and then that gets twice as much weight as the smile face mm -hmm. or whatever okay so it was intentional that they did that yeah like the waiting <clears throat> Yeah, the waiting is definitely intentional. You can argue, and a lot of people debate about whether or not they knew what they were doing. Um, with a lot of leaks that have come out get about the way Facebook has managed itself, it is clear that engineers and like when they had them, moderation teams knew that this was going to be a bad thing, but mm -hmm. they were ignored or fired. Yeah. So it's a real joy, a real delight. So. People see like Fox posts on not Fox News posts, not not pictures of foxes. Uh, they see these news articles on Facebook. Although they I do react... follow a Twitter account that just posts a fox every day. Yeah, the no, the Fenix I do Fox follow an Kenneth. Instagram account that they do. Uh, they rescue or no, not rescue. What's the word? Like rehabilitate foxes. Cool. And so they're just like living in their house, and they were having there was a little one and a little bit of a bigger one, and they were having a standoff like Lion King style. They're pretty what? funny. They're really cute, but they're the sound is wild. It is wild, <laughs> fucking wild. I know See, what I... you mean by rehabilitate foxes, and it's the right word. I just also like to imagine it as like foxes <laughs> who become a menace to society yes. <laughs> and like need someone to help them. GG Allen as a fox. Yeah. <laughs> oh, God.
So the anger and sadness spreads like a virus. Sadly, we're not talking about Fox rehabilitation. (laughs) Ultimately, this virus is carried over in one way or another to every social media platform. Social media companies have different algorithms, but the the commonality is that anger drives engagement and social media needs engagement. But we might ask, why is this so important? Why is engagement so important? Why is advertising so important? Do you ter- do you care to guess? Is it a is it a capitalism? It's a very yeah yeah. Go on. Uh, Rachel is doing the the make it rain thing. <laughs> money, 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 money. It is a specific specific type of capital. It is venture capital, or VC. Essentially, VC is big investments that might not pay off because of risk. VC firms will, to mitigate that risk, spread their investments around to a lot of different companies doing the same thing in the hopes that one of them will pay off enough to cover the losses when the other companies fold. In the grand tradition of walking up to a roulette table and putting <laughs> half your money on red and half on black. Exactly. <laughs> it is gambling, but with camp- with companies. You know, the stock market. Yeah. Except for companies not listed on the stock market because they're they're very they're small they're just tiny boys they're yeah. tiny guys they're little guys so we're going to talk about that. a Harvard Business Review article gives us the following statistic in 2015 VC backed business accounted for a fifth of the market and 44 percent of R and D research and development was based in VC funding Jesus fucking Christ. Yeah. Chief among those investments were IT and healthcare companies. I wasn't able to find that it, you know, in a very short research time period, a more up-to-date statistic, but I'm willing to bet it's similar, if not a larger share at this point. That was again in 2015. That Harvard Business Review article breaks down how VCs determine where to put their money. I put it this way. The first method is augury. VC is just kind of vibe out and guess what's going to be a big market push. They might as well be looking at the way birds are flying in Silicon Valley and figure out that's how they're going to put their money in a certain space. I think that'd be way cooler than what they do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yep. Uh, the, and the second one is networking, which is where most of this is. And this is where the really lame thing is. VCs talk to other VCs and other people in their peer circle, like alumni groups, and figure out what those people are doing, and then they do the same thing. And then three, ideology. Many VCs come from the rich technophile spaces that gave us people like the ones who wrote the cyberspace Magna Carta. If they're not outright objectivists, they're people people like Peter Thiel, right libertarians who value the market over all else, and write articles with titles like Competition is for Losers which you can find in the Wall Street Journal written by Peter Thiel, which I thought was a joke until I saw the byline. This leads them to be on the lookout for company founders who talk like them and act like them. In other words, they mostly turn to people who say what they want to hear. This is, potentially, why every startup out there wants to change the world with their, I don't know, phone quiet time app. If they don't... Fucking morons were like, I'm going to change the world by inventing banks, but online. And now everybody (laughs) listens to them for some reason because they invented banks, but online. Yep. (laughs) I'm going to invent phones, but online. I am going to I'm going to change the world by slight making a slightly more efficient communications infrastructure for B2B 
communication facilities mm -hmm. that enable better freedom. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Shut up. Sorry. Well, God, went to a dark space there. So invest in our new workflow optimization software. It will change the world. Yeah. Again, you should just watch Silicon Valley. It is surprisingly an accurate representation of everything in the tech industry. So if they don't 100 believe, percent believe that change the world line, then they're saying it so they can get VC funding. What comes through this whole how VCs make decisions article is, well, they don't use numbers. It's like that scene in Moneyball, a movie I'm sure both of you have seen. Oh, I fucking love Moneyball. Ah, hey, there, yeah, Moneyball's a great movie. Uh, Another thing that made me realize I was an asshole um, <laughs> was that all my friends watched sports to watch sports. Yeah. And I talked to them about sports. They all assumed I watched sports. I just read the statistics. <laughs> yeah, you are a baseball fan. I'm just, you a, just don't know it. I'm just a numbers guy. No, I don't like baseball. I don't like football. I don't like basketball. I just watch the, I just like the numbers. The numbers go up. War just, is I the just, best statistic. I just like numbers. I just want to. I just want to read about wins above replacement. <laughs> I don't. I don't yeah. want to watch the sports. I just want to be impressed by the numbers. You you know that Mike Trout, aka Fishman, is the best pitcher, one of the best pitchers around because of the numbers. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. bested right. only by Otani, who struck him out to end the World Baseball Classic. Most <laughs> they yeah. both play in the same same team. It's great. Yeah. So it's there's a scene in Moneyball where Billy Dean is played by Brad Pitt and he was the uh, manager for the A's, uh, and he's in this room with a bunch of uh, baseball scouts talking about who to sign for the next season, and the scouts are using terms like he's got a pretty wife to explain why they want to sign a player rather than like using metrics. Mm -hmm. So counter yes. to what the first VC article I wrote, uh, I, I quoted states, VCs surveyed by the uh, the Harvard Business Review are very open that they are placing enormous bets on startups that they hope will make them a lot of money all at once instead of a more reasonable amount of money, but spread throughout multiple companies. In other words, they expect many of their bets to fail, but hope that some succeed wildly. You go into a casino and you spread out your bets in the hope that you know, 99 pops up on the table, whatever. Mm -hmm. And if some startups fail but have tech, VC, tech that VCs think will work, they put in some clauses into, in, in some term sheets, basically contracts, that allow VC firms to take control of companies if that company fails under the current leaders. Mm. I, I don't know how prevalent that is. It's, it's something. Interesting. So I why... think it's super funny that these guys make these gambles. Yeah. And the three biggest money makers in like tech history, possibly, is banks, but online, which no one thought was going to make any money. Yeah. Um, a bookstore. Yeah. And <laughs> a guy who made a site to crush women's self esteem. And those were the three things that yeah. are like what was that one? Mark Zuckerberg and Facebook. Yeah. It started uh, yeah. off as face smash. The, and it yeah. was like, why? No one would have bet on any of these three things. You fucking yeah. idiots. It's again Silicon Valley with Big Head's thing of nip alert. Once <laughs> <laughs> you if, if a woman has erect nipples in your zip code. Oh my god. Horrible ideas that people still place bets on. Because <laughs> you never know what's going to work because you're relying on augury. Yeah. 
So why do founders go this route of like finding VC funding? Well, for one, it's very expensive to start up a tech company or any company. For another, if you get VC funding, other companies might take notice. Other companies might think that you have something in what you're doing, and those other companies might decide to just buy you out and take control of your tech, implement it in their stuff, and then hurl you to the side. For reference, look at Facebook and Google's approach to buying up competition, slapping the brand on it, and beginning the eventual and inevitable process of monetization and inshittification. See also, again, HBO's series Silicon Valley and their version of Google, Hooli. In our world, Google buys YouTube, brings it into Google. Facebook buys Instagram, brings it into Facebook, creates Meta. Excuse me. Then they go on to buy uh, WhatsApp, a communication tool used by an untold amount of people to do everything. <clears throat> In other words, all of the startups out there are trying to convince VCs that they can be the next Amazon or whatever, leading to language from everything from meta to that box you have to subscribe to in order to put your phone out of sight and out of mind. And all of them are saying that they're going to change the world in the hopes of landing a VC. What all of this means is that you no longer live in a world that makes sense. Economics is a mere suggestion. There are no rational actors, and anyone who says differently is selling something. Yep. And that, my friends, is why Facebook has been fucking over users and the internet as a whole for a couple of decades now. User information makes money. The more efficiently they make money, the more they can convince investors to give them more money. The more other companies see them do this, the more they implement similar processes and procedures. This is also why everything is a subscription model. If you can guarantee user buy-in, that means you have more revenue, which is good for getting VC attention and thus more funding and potential buyouts or big initial public offering. I hate subscriptions so much. Yeah. Yeah. So much. Yeah. I don't need to pay like... <laughs> $60, $70 a year for Microsoft. I don't. Don't use it. Like every don't do it. single. LibreOffice. LibreOffice. I mean, it's, it's too late. I think I have my subscription until like next October. But after yeah. that. Yeah. yeah. I quite literally am paying Zoom $15 so we can do this right now. See? We, we all fall prey to it one way or another. The word I love that was coined for this particular methodology is techno-feudalism. Yeah. It's Ew, the idea yes. that you like are renting your digital serfdom from yeah. yes. a lord. The same thing with like any kind of like unlimited storage, you know, yeah. like yeah. or like storage on your phone. Like I will continue to pay you. I don't like it. Yeah. You know, like I wish I didn't have to mm -hmm. to keep my pictures, but like <laughs> Yeah. I feel it's it's all there's um there's a term for it. I forget what it is exactly, but it's basically the idea of like uh, being locked into a service and the cost of getting out of that service. Yeah. <clears throat> and it's like once the goal for a lot of the stuff is to make it too costly in the view of people or like too inconvenient to get mm -hmm. out of the service. Well, there's so a lot of switch. stuff going around with like gym memberships. Like they yeah. make it so hard for you to cancel. Like, I think, I don't know specifics, but I think that there has been a lawsuit or multiple against these types of companies, like having these policies, because you should be able to just go in and cancel your membership. You don't have to go jump through hoops to do something, mm -hmm. you know, 
Yeah. It just drives me nuts. I remember um, the first of many times that I canceled my World of Warcraft subscription. <laughs> uh, they 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 started like real early on i think almost immediately doing this really cheap very stupid thing where like after you put in all of your cancellation stuff they direct like you you then click next and the next screen was like a sad peon that that basically was like no don't go don't go and they like try to give you another like thing but yeah like here's a discount you can stay are you sure Yeah. yeah fuck that like i like back like just for the gym thing like taylor my partner has been paying for a gym membership in michigan we do not live in michigan (laughs) oh my god charges for like a dollar maybe a dollar i think it's a little bit less a month and she has she has called to cancel this this membership and yet somehow they're just taking like a little bit out every month and she cannot get a hold of them it's just the most insane thing i hate it yeah I think what you mean is promoting innovation. What you're looking for, promoting innovation. Yeah. (laughs) It's something. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, it's like beyond even that, like the act of making it harder to cancel is like the more, the more devious thing of like, basically the thing that I've run into with having all of my stuff on Google, like the more stuff that you put on, the harder it is to switch off. Oh mm-hmm. yeah, as Google fucking owns my ass. Yeah. Shit, mm-hmm. I use Google Fi for my phone. And it's a good service. So I'm not like that's like the only product that Google has really nailed, surprisingly. And I think it's because they don't really do any of the infrastructure. I think they just kind of like piggyback off of other networks. But still, it's like mm-hmm. and that's why people don't switch from Apple. Because yeah. all their shit. Oh yeah, no. Well, Apple is, they don't have to worry yeah. about changing, like transferring anything over. Like, yeah. that, I get it. One of the things that I love about Apple is uh, if you have ever been in the standards world, and Apple joins a standards organization, this is not this is supposition and is not a claim that is legally <laughs> actionable by Apple. Is they may or may not contribute anything and just kind of siphon off ideas. Other people have said this. I have not said this. I am merely reporting what other people have said. Allegedly, Allegedly. they just introduce a bunch of chaos In into organizations. Minecraft, they do these things. We are very clever people on this podcast. Yeah. But yeah, this this is the glory of the of the modern world uh they've figured out that really software as a service is the best way to make yourself profitable profitable quick because uh like what you were saying earlier shark the 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 three times that these companies have made a lot of money they really haven't made a lot of money amazon was not turning a profit for a very long time vcs hinge on uh valuation which is again augury and we I have think seen that's... by the flights of birds that one day they will be worth this much money. And that's one of the things that's not talked about enough about like the global economy is that Amazon doesn't turn a profit. Facebook doesn't turn a profit. None yeah. of these companies turn a profit. They leverage their market share as an idea of future profits. And then they take out loans based on that amount to expand the service. And they will hit a point 
where their kraken-like tentacles can no longer wrap all the way around the boat, and then the world economy fucking collapses overnight. We are going to talk about the uh, profit margins of Facebook in a little bit, because since they are a publicly traded company, you can find their quarterly reports. Yeah. And it's it's amazing. Lovely. Like, so now they're turning a profit. But for a long time, they were not. But, and it's 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 on a hair string whether or not they will turn a profit next quarter. And they're using that to leverage themselves further. Any profit yeah. is just a way to leverage. It's oh, like yeah. showing, the, the, it's like taking out a mortgage on your house and being like, "Look, I own a four hundred thousand dollar home," and then taking yeah. out a mortgage on that mortgage. It's fucking yeah. insane. And it's it's like if you if you pay attention to the timing of mass layoffs. Yeah. In the tech industry, a lot of it happens always at the same time of year. It's so that they can report on their balance sheets that they are spending less on people. So they will fire a bunch of people right before the, the, the financial year ends, report a profit, and then hire a bunch of other people like the next at the start of the next fiscal year or the next quarter or whatever. It's uh, counting magic, necromancy. Yeah. <laughs> So we've been talking a lot about economics, which are which is bullshit. And again, <laughs> anyone who says that economics depends on rational actors because people are are rational actors is selling something, mostly their services or their resumes. Economists are put on earth to make astrologers look good. <laughs> <laughs> One of my favorite things. I have a lot of friends who are women who are out at bars often talking about astrology and every so often some condescending dude will be like, you're a fucking moron. And I'll be like, how much do you have invested right now? And he'll be like, he'll tell me about his stocks and I'll be like, they might believe that like Mars affects your mood, but you believe in the stock market. Yeah. See, I, I, my stance on the stock market is it's a gamble. And I know it's a gamble. Yeah. And the gamble is specifically that there will be a stock market in 40 years. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's the gamble. Well, I mean, we have to we have to believe in that because we're not going to have pensions. We yeah, don't exactly. have social That's... security. We don't have anything else. I, I was talking to a friend and we were talking about the uh, the recent riots in France because of the pension changes. And he sent a screenshot of an article. It was like, because they're writing over a two-year increase in the age of pensions and i was like you have to yeah if you give every the, time yeah if you give these fuckers an inch they're going to turn it into a stock they're going to turn it into a 401k yeah 100 yeah. yeah so again we've been talking about necromancy yeah. but what about the social impact of all of this <laughs> well one simple factor is that part of the reason the entire internet is nothing but videos now is because facebook in their attempt to get more attention and engagement, convinced everyone that people wanted to see more videos. Specifically, they pushed fake metrics that indicated that users were engaging more with videos than articles, announced that to their advertisers, and the internet changed. A Guardian article puts it this way. As advertising budgets shunted towards video to tap the apparent Facebook viewership goldmine, publishers' editorial budgets followed. Publications such as Mike, Vice, Mashable, and many others laid off writers and editors and cut back on tech stories to focus on producing short, snappy videos to people wa- for people to watch and their Facebook feeds. And the and foundation this is why... of that pitch was bullshit. Facebook lied about the metrics. 
Sorry, Rachel, go ahead. No, I'm sorry. Uh, this is why I don't read books anymore. So thank you. <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah, I was I was talking to a former coworker a while ago, and like she was we, we were talking about how much we we distrust TikTok and everything, and she was saying like her husband has <laughs> said like he doesn't have attention spans for anything over a minute anymore. <laughs> Because he's just gone so far down this like YouTube shorts hole and TikTok thing, and it's like, Jesus, no wonder everyone has ADHD now. Mm-hmm. Oh my god! I, I think. I... Do you know what dancing plagues are? Yeah, yeah. So like, Rachel, during, uh, yeah, go ahead. During the late Middle Ages, there was a thing that happened a few times. It was totally inexplicable, where people would just start dancing. And anyone who showed up would join them. And not like normal dancing. They would dance until they wore through the bottoms of their feet and were dancing on their bones. And they would dance till their hearts exploded. They would dance until they just collapsed from exhaustion. And no one knows why it happened. And every time I think about like the way we utilize information to fuck people's attention spam, I think about dancing plagues. Because mm. like... You will. I know. I am a fucking video game addict. I know that I will ruin everything I love and play fucking 14 hours of a game where I make beavers build houses. Like, How is that game? I keep. I, I thought about That sounds nice. It's really great. And okay. I don't want to do it anymore. <laughs> <laughs> but I can't stop. Like I will do it until I do the yeah. mental equivalent of dancing through the soles of my feet and having my heart explode. And the brain should not be allowed to. It's it, bad. It's, it, that could be like a second episode about video games. It's a whole <laughs> Skinner box thing. Yeah. And how like I think WoW was one of the first games that I think of. I mean, probably RuneScape and EverQuest, but yeah. like who kind of weaponized the lizard brain in, in yeah. people and like figured out that you can keep people playing and paying subscriptions by introducing like daily quests. Yeah. Because mm. if you enter, if you do enough daily quests, then you increase your reputation with factions. And Rachel, do you know what happens if you increase your reputation with factions enough? Mm, do you get like boosted? No. What? You can get a little pet that looks like a Wolverine. And it oh, follows it. you around. Worth it. Worth it. Or 100%. you could get a big dragon that looks real cool, but you can only get that if you do enough daily quests. Yeah. I mean, that's the way to get me sucked into something. Oh, yeah. No, that's that, that's why like I had so much trouble quitting WoW for a while. Is like I didn't raid or anything because I that was horrible and I didn't do any PvP, but like I really the 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 mounts and the pets thing really tapped into that part of my brain. <laughs> where I'm like, yeah, I want the Wolverine, or I want the, the I want the what, what's the little like guys, Murloc? Is that what those I are? I don't know. I don't know. Uh, I'm looking at Shark. Shark. I'm not, a, I'm not a wower. No, I think it was Murlocs. <laughs> yeah, if you get one of those guys, then it's great. But and like you, will, we will do the intellectual equivalent of dancing till our hearts yeah. explode. Exactly. And the worst thing is, like, dancing plagues just happened and no one knew why. 
there are people creating. There's like a dancing plague industrial complex <laughs> right now. Yeah, the dancing app for children. Yeah, yeah, so the yeah. dancing app. Yes, as <laughs> yeah. everyone in Congress seems to think it is because they could I, that's, start a Zoom call on their own. It's because of um, Nathan Fielder. <laughs> there was a there was a great video uh, that was or uh, like it was an interview with Nathan Fielder that was about uh, another show that he produced. And he starts talking about that show and then slowly turns it into how he's uh, opening up a TikTok influencer house. <laughs> yeah. yeah anyway. So, like, wrestle your attention back from these people because you will yeah. explode your own heart. Yeah. They're it's too hard, good at though. it. No, it is super it's fucking hard. hard. <laughs> like, and I, I. No, it is hard. I think the only thing that kept me from doing it for a while is like, when I, especially when I first moved to, to Redacted, like, I was on a really cheap data plan. <laughs> so like I still I had a smartphone, but I couldn't do a lot of fun stuff because I mm -hmm. was getting paid mm -hmm. dog shit and I couldn't afford like decent data plans. Yeah. And uh and now I just I don't know. I mean, I'm not I'm not saying that I'm great because I don't do this stuff. I mean, I I reject social outings so I can just read Herodotus and listen to Klezmer. So I'm not any better, but it's just I've got more attention span. Yeah. And like anything that's fun on the internet and free, once again, the yeah. product is you. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I hear way too many conversations during my day about like market research and like yeah. all the information that they are gathering about you. My friend. Not great. I, I had a friend. He still lives in Redacted, but I don't really hang out with him that much anymore whose entire career has been email marketing oh. and he makes well into the six figures Jesus. doing email marketing. But that's a soul, soul sucking, you know, he, it's like, he look, this guy operates from a place of pure bliss where he doesn't think about that. <laughs> I he, guess that's nice for him. He does his PowerPoint decks and then just goes wandering off listening to basketball games and whatever else God. like he's he's a nice guy but sometimes no That's thoughts how the world remains complacent i, I know like people just i know okay sorry i i'm not saying that to cut you off i'm agreeing with you i know i know yeah. <laughs> now there's another reason that all of this is good for business aside from more advertising money it's a lot harder to sell people on moderating videos than it is articles or online forum engagement. Or, put another way, it's easier to moderate text than it is video. From a cyber libertarian perspective, if you have a high engagement, high reaction video that's false, but is better suited to advertising money, you'll want to have that on your site than, rather than something that's more dialed in to the truth, but with lower engagement. I.e. Glenn Grit, yeah. Glenn Greenwald and then Catherine Valente with seven, not seven, but seven followers on Substack. Yeah. I refer to this as the Johnny Harris effect. You know Johnny Harris? He was a Vox journalist and a New York Times guy yeah. who did a series of really popular YouTube videos okay. that were like, what if someone who knew nothing about foreign relations or the history of North Korea? explain to you incorrect facts about these things at like a <laughs> sixth grade level with a lot of fun charts okay and like all this stuff was bullshit 
but it's really polished and it sounds right and it's very interactive like it's so a ted talk watch. yeah it's yeah <laughs> it's like a ted talk with a better budget and okay it's just like that genre of person who like those bite-sized facts about the world free of context and yeah it's like, the number one form of interactive media i get real weirded out by people who get their news from twitch or like specifically yeah. youtube because yeah that is like you can't good. there's too much that's that's let's <laughs> drink it from a fire hose and i don't like it no <laughs> No, it's like I, I like I, I don't watch a lot of it because it's like, for reasons that will become immediate immediately apparent. But like people like FD Signifier is great, but his videos are like an hour and a half to three hours long and <laughs> are very well researched and presented very simply. Like he doesn't do a lot of clever editing, but that stuff that I, I don't know, I, I'm sure he 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 does well enough, but. It's not the same as like the rabid engagement that like people like Vosh get or whatever. And if you don't know who Vosh is, Rachel, then you should not know who Vosh is. Your life will continue to be fulfilling and you will have continue to have meaningful and healthy relationships with other people. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, the people uh, standing in the way of all of this are content moderators who no longer exist. And again, we turn into we turn to Facebook. In the past, Facebook has come under fire for absurdly lax content moderation that has allowed the fermentation of race hatred, leading to genocides against the Rohingya people in in Myanmar. Or, more recently, the Ethiopian civil war raged on with massive death tolls and, once again, calls for racial and ethnic violence openly made on Facebook. Yeah, during uh, the Rwandan genocide, a big part of what was happening there was there was these radio stations that blasted like racist propaganda that allowed for like mass coordinations of violence in a way that was like hard to replicate without a state before, which is what was interesting about Rwanda. And like Facebook is just the racist Rwandan radio stations, but nobody gives a fuck. Like they like just keep being these radio stations, which is like mind boggling. It's terrible. And one of the things that they lean on in defense is that moderation in other languages is expensive. And implementing support for other languages is expensive. But I want to turn to the latest like profit sheets for Facebook on this. They have a revenue in Q4 of 2022 of $116 billion. And their net income, net income was $23 billion. So they reported a profit of $23 billion. And it strikes me that the company could easily afford to implement moderation in other languages with that kind of money. Yeah. But that costs money. And spending money to do something as paltry as stop genocides seems to run contrary to the libertarian ethos of making money. And it would just be like fucking insane if someone in any other industry made that argument. Like if iHeartRadio was the thing (laughs) that the Rwandan genocide fucking broadcasts were blasted on they would have been just crushed by the fcc yeah like crushed but but you see well we'll we'll get into that in a little bit insane Uh, yeah it's it's absurd it is one might presume too reminiscent of evil government regulation this whole moderation thing this leads to the fact that when layoffs hit groups like content moderation are the first ones hit 
A New York Times article in the show notes that'll, that will be included outlines this impact across YouTube, Google, and other companies. Put simply, it's real bad, guys. <laughs> like, sometimes you get moderation teams for giant giant sites that are in the ones of people. Lovely. Yeah. So this, this brings us to, I think, our final part, moderation and lamentation. All of this has led to an ecosystem where the internet and social media in particular is a breeding ground for hatred. Because hatred drives engagement and engagement is good for profit, the internet is at this point the evil tree in Empire Strikes Back. And we are all Luke Skywalker going in there, except we don't have a Yoda to tell us, hey, what you're doing is a bad thing, don't do it. Even if we did have that Yoda, we, like Luke, would not listen. Yes. Right. Yep. <laughs> now, the tech industry is at a tipping point where it's very clear that one, moderation is desperately needed, and two, tech companies will not, absolutely not, implement moderation on their own. This is coming to a head at the Supreme Court with a hearing on Section 230. And I am about to present a very, very dumb summary of what this whole debate is, so... Stripping away all the legal code and whatnot, what this boils down to is whether or not a platform like Facebook, Twitter, or YouTube is culpable for the content published on the platform. As it stands today, per Section 230 of the 1996 Communications Decency Act, platforms are not. They act as neutral publishers of information and are not required to moderate information for hate speech or whatever else. At the Supreme Court... There is a case brought by the parents of a woman killed in a terrorist attack that says that platforms are in fact culpable and have a responsibility to take down the sorts of things that radicalized someone to the point where they joined ISIS and committed a suicide bombing attack that killed their child. And again, the reason this exists is because you had people advocating for a hands-off approach to the internet. People like Newt Gingrich, John Perry Barlow, and everyone else that we talked about in our first episode. Now, this is a complex case. Legal Eagle, who's a guy that I do like on YouTube, has a video you can watch that outlines it, and it's included in the show notes. And I am 100% sure that I missed even high-level details because I only have a passing familiarity with this stuff, aside from an omnipresent worry that things will go bad very quick. The main concern that I personally have on this is that if it comes down to federal regulations to, de to designate hate speech, your friendly neighborhood anarchists, ranging from food not bombs to like, I don't know, the people who go around spraying 161 on fucking everything and redacted for some unknown reason, are going to be placed square in the crosshairs of the feds and tech companies even more than they already are. I, Absolutely. I don't know. I don't Absolutely. know. What do you, you think? You agree, Rachel? How about you? Yeah, no, I agree. I yeah, it's a long matter of time. Guarantee you that if the Supreme Court rules on this to say that they have a responsibility to limit speech, there's going to be fucking lawsuits out the ass for any left wing person who like yep. throws a rock at a Nazi, and the dude yep. who opens fire at a gay bar is going to walk free, and the tech company is mm -hmm. going to be fine. Like absolutely. Yep. Do we know when this is going to be heard? Uh, I think the hearing started last week or a couple of weeks ago at the time of this recording. Um, okay. Was the TikTok it's, it's seemed... um, hearing a part of that whole thing? No, no that's that separate. separate. That was yep. separate. Okay. Yeah, that was a congressional thing about okay. uh, the severity of it being it. And it is baked in as a surveillance app. But 
Yeah, but they're not alone. So. Yeah, it, was, it was the federal government wondering if TikTok could do to you what Facebook had already done to you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah, I don't know the status of it right now. I think, mo- like, Legal Eagle's main, the poor son of a bitch has been churning out video after video about all of the Trump legal stuff that's been happening because that's getting more headlines and thus more of his time. So... I don't know. And Cory Doctorow's uh, thing has not been about Section 230 either, so it might still be on the Supreme Court uh, docket. I don't know. Okay. So regardless of the outcome of the two, of the case at the Supreme Court, it should be apparent to anyone who's been on the internet that the people who run the internet, typically people who fall on the cyber libertarian side of things, are opposed to moderation. You don't even have to think about legal requirements or ideology. All you have to do is look at social media's track record when it comes to this stuff. Facebook has enabled genocides. Twitter was essentially Kiwi Farm's playground for years and is rapidly becoming worse. 4chan exists. 8kun was even worse. Once you're familiar with all of that, you can then think a little more critically. You can realize that moderation costs money. Moderation decreases engagement by tamping down on the rage bait. Moderation drives away lucrative ad partners like Google and Fox News because their business, like yours, relies on rage and the spreading of rage. Study after study has shown the impact of these algorithms and what gets boosted over others. Again, just a few of those can be found in the show notes. At the heart of it, we should say that right libertarians are not inherently Nazis and are not inherently allies with fascists. I have known several libertarians who like go to pride rallies and show up to racial justice or whatever, but right libertarians with power and money, you know, objectivists, are people you should be very, very wary of. All you have to do is realize that something you don't know what but something has to change uh, is look at the growth of QAnon of the spread of COVID deniers, of the impact of far-right groups on social media, leaning to more and more attacks on LGBTQ plus events and people, on synagogues, on Muslims, on just about everyone who does not fit the fascist narrow definition of acceptability. These things have become unmanageable through conventional means, and they got that way through the inaction, often willfully slow, of platform owners under the guise of neutrality or cost-cutting. And... This is not even considering all of the Web 3.0 shit that we'll be talking about in our next episode. We're not even at the point right now where we need to talk about crypto and AI. We're not at the point where just the other day, as I write this sentence, whenever this was, deep fake images of Trump getting a perp walk apparently spread like wildfire and convinced a lot of people that he'd been arrested. We have no idea of the horrors that await us. I have so many things to say about us. I am excited. Oh, about I that. saw an image of it was a deep fake of Morgan Freeman saying something bad. I don't remember what it was about <laughs> Joe Biden and how it was like the worst deep fake, but yet it has like over like a thousand shares and blah blah yeah. blah. I'm just like, cool, cool, yeah. cool, cool. Things like, are good, good and cool. Attack and overthrow reality. It is the <laughs> only way forward. Well, that's what they're doing right now, Shark. <laughs> I am. I think that this is the cure, and I will get into that. All right. I, I, well, I look forward the next to next episode. That's going to be my unhinged rant that visibly made my father in law uncomfortable during our last hike.
Nice. <laughs> Excellent. That makes I sounded way that. more like Vigo the Carpathian than a <laughs> rational human. <laughs> Vigo the Carpathian is the ruler we all need. <laughs> oh God, that. I'm almost tempted to watch that movie tonight, but I'm not going to. I know that movie's not great. How dare you blame Ghostbusters? Ghostbusters 2? Yeah. <laughs> Vigo the Carpathian is great, but the rest of that movie... Everyone else is fine in it, and it's true. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, except for Dan Aykroyd, who again is a lunatic and <laughs> believes yeah. everything. In, in... Like, there's a story about the first movie... Where, like, the original script that Dan Aykroyd wrote had them going to hell and fighting the devil. There's also a truly incredible part of that movie that got left in somehow that Dan Aykroyd wrote. You Um, know the scene where he gets a blowjob from a ghost? Yeah. You don't Uh, know this scene, Rachel? I don't. I have not seen it in a while. There's a scene in Ghostbusters where he gets his dick sucked by a ghost. And it's like, (laughs) that that was a whole plot thread he wrote. (laughs) Why the fuck is that in there? I i mean they probably just left it in to see if they could see if anybody would want to take it out like the most insane thing was writing it in the first place the second most insane thing (laughs) was leaving a 10 second clip of you getting your dick sucked by a ghost with no explanation like i wonder if it it was a compromise thing like they took out so much that Ackroyd wanted he was like you have to leave the dick suck you have to leave the ghost blowjob or i walk (laughs) <laughs> well now with deep fake technology you you can make this your wildest dream and make it real it's gonna be great for the fanfic industry oh god that's a dark internet that i keep forgetting about and then get reminded about you're gonna be able to watch brad pitt and troy fuck pennywise the clown you're soon. gonna you're gonna see so much pregnant sonic stuff <laughs> That's so sad. <laughs> that nothing is, nothing that is so personal. Like what? Snick. <laughs> Rachel, this is yeah, you were not on the internet a lot when you were no. in, like, ten years ago or whatever. Nope. Yeah. Well, okay, yeah. Ten I'm years ago. But... Envious of you. You're yeah. Gonna, you're gonna be able to watch Hitler and Pikachu really yeah. get down. Yeah. The the ship industry is gonna become gigantic. <laughs> I uh, a while ago, I there's when I when I started dating this girl, uh, her housemate and I were at a bar, and he kept yeah, saying like, "Yeah, I ship you guys a lot already." I was like, "This uh-uh. is no. I can't talk to you anymore." Don't say that out loud. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it was. <laughs> don't talk to him anymore. Uh, anyway, so in the cyberpunk rule set, a place <laughs> I say that sentence. I'm never going on a date again. In the cyberpunk rule set, there's a bit of lore, I think, that we're hitting, metaphorically, sooner than we think we are. At one point in the alternate timeline in which this game is set, the net goes weird. A guy named Bart Moss wreaks havoc, and as part of that, these things called rabbits start tearing through the net infrastructure, killing off net runners, people who go into the internet and do things, and regular users alike. Things called black ice... And that's an acronym for what I forget. Uh, programs used Wait, to Wait, it's it's not the car uh, fragrance hanger that you would have on your rearview mirror. <laughs> no, Aaron has missed this piece of culture. <laughs> <laughs> I've not owned a car or driven a car oh, regularly okay. since. That was the fragrance of those that's black true. Christmas trees. 
Oh, okay. my God. Aaron. Okay. <laughs> Whatever. I moved Keep to going. Redacted to not have to have a car. It didn't have You're enough the to one do person. With... Yes. Yeah. I know. It didn't have enough I to do with the orcs, Rachel. <laughs> didn't have anything to do with orcs? Yeah. That's why you didn't know. <laughs> so Black Ice, these are programs that are used to attack netrunners and systems, are even more weaponized than they were already. Eventually, things are brought under control by basically the only functioning arm of the government called Netwatch. But in order for things to be under control, the net has to be essentially obliterated. At the time the latest edition, Red, uh, is set in 2045, the net is highly localized and clamped down. Now, I'm not saying that ChatGPT is going to start killing people like a bad episode of Black Mirror, but I am saying that it's a metaphor for the massive impacts of these things that were wildly unprepared. Anyone who is not deeply worried that these things are at the beck and call of a bunch of startups in an industry that has shown zero responsibility for its actions, well, that's that's next episode. It's a metaphor. Trust me. To ground us back to the human perspective and not the cyberpunk red perspective, I want us to think back to a source Even I mentioned. Those perspectives right. are slowly getting asymptotically closer. Yeah, it's terrifying i hate it <laughs> it's it i it's bad real bad so i want us to go back to the source i mentioned earlier the stop talking to each other and start buying things thing uh it's a passionate take on one person's experiences on social media it outlines the evolution of the internet through the lens of prodigy live journal and twitter and how each platform outlined cory doctorow's in shitification arc to a t Valente describes where a lot of our uh, social media outlets are by saying the following, and she's outlining the arc. Get rid of moderation. Moderation keeps out users who will spend money to be mean. Ooh, right-wing press, uh, lots of dollars onto screens. Sell user data to anyone who wants it. Crack down on marginalized communities because your advertisers or investors don't like them. Get VC capital. Do an IPO. Splinter formerly free services and start charging for them. Sell the people you brought together on purpose to a large corporation, a trash billionaire, or despotic government entity who hates that site's community, uh, hates that the site's community use those connective tools to do a revolution. Elsewhere, Valente talks about LiveJournal. Now, I was a prolific LiveJournal. Again, you will not be able to find my LiveJournal, nor will you be able to find my Zanga. I loved the site. Love a it challenge. Was yeah, yeah. I, I will be shocked if you find it. Uh, it was simple. It had weird bouncing alien heads you could use to illustrate what kind of a mood you were in. I used angry a lot. And again, it connected you to other weirdos in an, in an anonymous way. What I didn't know was that it was a place where Russian dissidents convened to organize movements against Putin. Hmm. That is, until it was bought by a Russian company. The servers were then moved to Russia and slowly turned into a brick that was wildly hostile to even American users. And that, my friends, isn't shitification. Now, throughout writing the script, I've done a lot of reflection on why, on why I've grown so goddamn embittered with the internet. I used to love it. I used to connect with people in chat rooms on AOL and IRC. I developed crushes on people I would absolutely in no way ever way meet in real life, but that was okay because it fell it fed into my weird Cyrano de Bergerac fixation. But somewhere along the line, 
that changed. <laughs> just like this is so on brand. Everything he's saying, <laughs> this makes perfect sense. Were you really a maladjusted, semi-talented writer in your life if you weren't at some point obsessed with Cyrano de Bergerac? <laughs> yeah, I, 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 I don't think so. Like that is just that's, that's what everyone right. wants to believe that like my yeah. writing is so good that yeah. someone will fuck me. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> and then you realize that you have to develop a personality and it's a sad day. <laughs> exactly. It's a real it's bummer, a shock. man. It's a shock that many of us never recover from. <laughs> no. <laughs> uh, but somewhere along the line, all of that changed. Before I knew it, I'm sitting here telling coworkers that they need to delete their socials because it's just going to rot their goddamn brains. And ultimately, that change happened pretty quickly. Probably around 2011 to 2016, Web 2.0 became extremely monetized. And with that monetization, everything changed for the worse. You could still connect with people, but you had to jump through really just inconvenient hoops to do it. You had to be wary of phishing, not from scammers, but from corporations. You suddenly had to be aware of security holes. You suddenly saw huge websites like Reddit spike in popularity and turn into even more toxic cesspits because toxicity breeds engagement and engagement turns into money. And I want to be clear, I want to like these places again. I want to be able to com- connect with like-minded weirdos. I would love to be able to make the kind of friendships I have now that I made back before everything really and truly turned to shit. Because of weird corners of the internet, I have friends outside of Philadelphia, D.C., Krakow, London, all across the world. Hell, because of those weird corners of the internet, I have a couple of friends down the street who watch my dog when I go out of town. But I've been burned so many times that I don't want to deal with the wariness. I've seen the sites I used on an unhealthy basis, purposely turned into genocide-enabling, QAnon-spreading, anti-Semitism-friendly places that would make corn the chaos god best known for skulls for the skull throne step back and say whoa let's all chill out (laughs) for a bit okay i read this paragraph from from valente's piece and legitimately i teared up it goes i'm so tired of just harmlessly getting together with other weird geeks and going to what amounts to a digital pub after work and waking up one day to find every pint poisoned over and over again Like the poison wants us specifically. Like it knows we will always make its favorite food, vulnerability, connection, difference. I'm so tired of lunch photos and fanfic and stupid jokes and keeping in touch with family across time zones and making friends and started cottage industries and pursuing hobbies and meeting soulmates and expressing thoughts and creating identities and loving TV shows and reading books and getting to know a few of your heroes and raising kids and making bookshelves and knitting and painting and fixing sinks and first dates and homemade jam and yes, figuring out what Buffy characters we are. Listening and learning and hoping and just fucking talking to each other, all of this weaponized against us. Having our enthusiasm over the smallest joys of everyday life invaded by people who long ago forgot their value and turned into fodder for the death of thought, the burial of love. Shit sucks. Wow. Yeah. It does suck. It's a good, it's a good quote. Yeah. Yeah. Again, it's a really good piece. Really good piece. (laughs) So... Where do we go from here? 
fuck if I know. Dr. O and the EFF published a piece that proposes a federated interoperability focused internet, which is a techie way to say you post a thing, it goes to an RSS link, people plug that RSS link into their social media feed, no matter where it comes from, and voila. It's basically the data pool in the cyberpunk red rulebook. And is that realistic? Will it work? Who the fuck knows? I got no idea where to go from here. I don't have the energy to try and make connections on Mastodon, even if it's not as hard to use as people say it. What are you two? Shark, you can go first. Um, have you ever heard of the book The Revolution of Everyday Life? No. No. It's a great it's a great read. And he talks about how um one of the problems with Marx is that he wasn't a um, normal human being with connections to people. <laughs> yes, <laughs> in a sense, they say he says that he was that Marx like wasn't an artist and he understood the alienation okay. of work, but he doesn't understand that like what that does to a psyche, like being commodified, turning into a product, and everything around you turning into a product, um, just like strips you of everything and he has this great bit um people who talk about revolution and class struggle without referring explicitly to everyday life without understanding what is subversive about love and what is positive in the refusal of constraints such people have corpses in their mouths yeah and i think that just like nails it it's that like we are the subversive nature of love is commodified the refusal of constraints is commodified. Like identity itself, existence itself becomes commodified. And that leaves us all with fucking corpses in our mouth. Like there's nowhere to go from there. And we just become dead inside. Yep. One of the things I really like about one of the essays from Book Chim that I wrote is kind of along the same lines where he advocates just like you, you, your approach to organizing or revolutionary politics or something has to come from a completely different perspective from the thing that you are fighting against. Yeah. Otherwise you're just going to wind up creating that system again. Yeah. And he, he mm -hmm. talks about why uh, left-wing movements don't get traction is they, they forget the human aspect and they couch so much of their discourse in answering these predatory systems in their own language versus a human language yeah and, and i think that like that misses the fact that like the point of the <clears throat> system is to strip you of that humanity yeah yeah you can't be human if all you're doing is consuming content yeah and the fact that people both jokingly and not jokingly refer to their stuff as content yeah even jokingly i find disturbing it is i i don't like that and like i'm uh, I, I don't know we kind of do a joke we 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 keep doing a bit about me creating art and art should be atonal screeching or nothing else but it's like yeah you just can't fall into that trap of thinking well i gotta write write content and yeah. like one of the things that bums me out about the writing industry is how much of a market thing it is and like the 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 crass market sense of you have to write something with an audience in mind in terms of like a market segment. It's just a fucking bummer. Yeah. It's fucking insane. I mean, I've been, so I have been job searching for a while and a lot of Lord the have jobs, mercy on your soul. <laughs> yeah, it is. Um, 
like the worst time I could have chosen to be unemployed, but you know, it's okay. Um, but what I've been learning is that like, there are so many marketing roles open and like SEO marketing, paid search marketing, like mm-hmm. social media, like everything. And I'm like, I cannot fathom spending my day trying to market a product or a service to people that I don't believe in. And I'm like, I do not understand how people make their careers in marketing because you know that there are people that do not believe in what they are promoting. Yeah, You know, like even just, so I just, I mean, people have talents in every ask every facet of our like our society sure but i i can't fathom doing marketing that's my hot take what one of the reasons i like star trek so much is like the 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 peaks that you get into life on earth in the federation like that i don't know about picard picard I'm, i'm gathered is like a much more bleak view of everything which is a bummer but like it it's a world that's post scarcity and post money so there's no money you just have the freedom to based on like you're going to have a place to live your base needs will be paid seen to one way or another and you can just do whatever you feel like you can do and it's like deep space nine which is again the best star trek fight mate the the captain cisco like his dad is a he's got i think it's a creole restaurant in san francisco and it's just like that's really cool. Like he's an old dude, and he just makes his restaurant, and like you can go in there for a meal. You don't have to pay money for it. And it's like, yeah, I'm not concerned that I'm not going to be able to pay rent. And it's like that should be the goal, yeah, of a mm-hmm. society. Is like I just want to. Oh, I like having people over for gumbo, and I would like to do that. Yeah, I mean, there I, are enough people. It's like everyone would like should be able to like pursue the thing that makes them feel alive and like. Yeah want to help other people there's enough people in our world where we can do that and we should have a functioning society yeah i think that like what i think that if you want to look at like a incredibly prescient view of what the world would become there's no one better to study than the nazis i think that they're like they really had a grasp on like 20th century capitalism yeah and i think like I keep meaning to write this somewhere, but I haven't. Like, the underlying myth of the modern culture is the phrase, Arabite mocked fry on a place yeah. you will never escape. It That's what it always is. It's like work and commodity and production will eventually get you to the other side, but it's a fucking death camp. Like, yeah. there's no out there. It's all just bullshit. And it's like worse than a death camp in some way because there's no like there is no. It will there continue there. to evade you. Yes, yeah. no matter what. You You're not going to be given yeah. the mercy of a death. Yeah, there's nothing to like. There's no end to march towards. It's just yeah. fucking pop up ads forever yeah. now. It, the the Doctor O's uh, newsletter today was about a, a a new bold industry that's popped up of. L- exploiting a loophole in creative commons where if you didn't attribute someone correctly then like the li- the license is void and you can sue them so there was this Wait, what so okay, cre- sorry, creative commons is basically it's like copyright except you just do it without any expectation of money 
So I could yeah. like I could write a script and put it up on the internet under Creative Commons, and someone could like film a short movie off of it. And as long as they attributed me like the original screenplay by Aaron Simon, then it's fair use. Okay. But yeah. there was a loophole in one of the license versions about like proper attribution. So like if you didn't attribute it in the exact correct way. So if you messed up and didn't link to the original source or whatever, then the attribution was null and void and it was just copyright. So there's a co- okay. there's a cottage industry that popped up on Flickr, which is a file sharing or a photo sharing website. Yeah, I remember Flickr, yeah. Yeah, that basically like tr- made money by scaring people into paying them off because they didn't attribute their stuff correctly. So this company would threaten these massive lawsuits against them. Mm-hmm. So they did that to Corey Doctorow. But Doctorow is one of the guys who helped create Creative Commons and (laughs) has a lot of reach and it backfired because now Flickr is like shutting those down. So, yeah, it's just everything gets commodified and becomes predatory and nothing is safe because you you have a, a special breed of person who is going to take the idea that you don't that you shouldn't have to work 40 hours a week to make a living but turn that into a hellscape yeah so they make a four-hour work week that's built on farming out cheap uh, photography putting it on a website and counting on people to misattribute it and then threaten lawsuits yeah (laughs) or what i I don't know if it's still a thing but like uh there was a uh cycle of people hiring copywriters on the absurd cheap to churn out books and uh, put them on Amazon and the way that they determine what the book should be focused on was search engine optimization. Wow. So you'd get like a Google Analytics account, right? Yeah. And you'd say, all right, AI is trending right now. So I'm going to farm, I'm going to like put out a contract for a copywriter in, I don't know, India to write a book for a couple grand and I'm going to sell it on Amazon and it's going to make X amount of money. I'm not doing any work. So you're just like facilitating it happening, right? Yep. You are, and this turned into a thing where like social media influencers were saying, this is, this is the way to hack your way to a better life. And like they pitched it as being a like a publishing house, mm-hmm. but it's just not just outsourcing the work that it's still being done. Yeah, and the person writing it yeah. gets no no rights to it. All the rights stay within your LLC because that's part of the contract, mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's all done in the name of hustle culture. Love it. <laughs> This, this is the, very absolutely deeply, fucking love it. It's yeah. very deeply into my crazy person pitch about why chat GPT will save the world. Um, and that is our next episode. So what are your final it. thoughts? I don't know. I don't know if I have any coherent thoughts. It's just like the internet was a really fucking <laughs> weird place for a long, long time. It was a good place. And like what shark was saying earlier, it's like, I find ways to avoid sitting down at the computer. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, yeah. I 
actively I'm like, I do not want to stare at a screen for more long, like for longer than I have to. And that makes me a little bit sad because I used to play Sims 4 for hours. Hmm. I used to like love being on the computer. And it's just, I feel like everything about the internet has slowly just, I I can't do it anymore. And that's why I also don't have an attention span. So. Well, that's why I think like things like what we're doing now is cool and people should do it more. Like, honest to God, get on the internet to write bad poetry with people that no one's yeah. ever going to read. Record a podcast with your friends that you don't give a shit if anyone ever listens to like do these actions that aren't consumerist in a space that's been so commodified it's like a revolution in and of itself you yeah you i i probably shouldn't tell you about the very lucrative patreon that i've been running for our (laughs) (laughs) oh well fuck it we're doing this nine to five then yeah Yeah, no it's like don't make your whole life a content creation device yeah fuck it so stupid it's a sad way to live chat gpt